Hello, and welcome to the Word on the Hill with the Lanky Guys. My name is Father Peter Musset. My name is Scott Powell, and we are happy that you joined us. Yeah, Scott is very happy that you joined us. <laughs> uh, presumably, Father Peter, somewhere in his heart, no, is as well. The, I, you know what, what I love? Mean? I love the weird Father... You threw me under the bus, but in a really positive way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so funny because there, there's this joke that I love doing. It's a pure dad joke oh, okay. where Let's you just, it. I where, love it. well, no, I just did it. Oh. Where it's like, it's like <laughs> some people really like that, which you could, which implies that you don't, but then you, but if you actually read it in the right way, you can say, no, I actually do like it as well. But there's this gap where you're like, is he being facetious? You don't always come across really thinking dad jokes. So you've really, you really achieved something with that one. <laughs> yeah. Cause then, then they're A like, dad joke, you have to really ponder. Yeah. It's, it's like dry and mm. it doesn't really go anywhere. So I like it. Hey, thanks. Some people like my jokes. <laughs> was, that, was that it again? Yeah, yeah exactly. Because <laughs> like, I like my jokes too. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 but then you're like, you're you like, leave the door open. Yeah, you're like, you're like, I, I like I your joke. And you're like, do. some people. And you're like, am I some people? What's going on? This isn't funny. I no, don't it's like fun. this. So, I enjoy it. Well, yeah. All right, I got to talk about something. Yo. Um, we, uh, I got <laughs> a clarification and a disclaimer, I think. And oh, okay. yeah, clarification and disclaimer. I got, um, I'm not going to, I wanted to say inordinate. I got a surprising amount of emails and messages about last week's podcast. Really? Where I had spoken about um, the 90s and my positive experience of the 90s. Remember we talked about how like yeah. the 90s were awesome. Uh, I've never seen <laughs> so many consistent uh, charts and graphs of violent crime statistics <laughs> no. proving trying to prove to me that I was incorrect about that. And I, I, I want to, and uh, there was a number of them. So a number of you um, were, I think a little bit frustrated and maybe just had different experiences. Um, a point of clarification, I mentioned a uh, New York times article by Ross Douthit, um, wonderful columnist who specifically, I just kind of offhandedly referenced him. He makes an argument specifically about the year 1999, being this particularly high moment geopolitically and economically and socially in our country, um, it is not. This is not a universal. So the two things I want to clarify um, in my talking to Father Peter, this was this was our subjective, very limited experience of the world in the little bubbles in which we existed. The, our world felt safe. That's not to say that there wasn't still crime. There wasn't still war. I know that the Gulf War happened, the Oklahoma City bombing. Everyone reminded me of all the atrocities that took place in the 90s, which is true. Absolutely, I grant that. Um, so on one level, we were speaking to a, a very subjective, like this was my experience with the church, with the world. Um, but at the same time, you know, Oklahoma City w was horrible. There were horrible, horrible things. But I do think you can make the case that things on a on a national and on a global level just took a turn shortly thereafter, and things got a little bit crazy. And there was a period of relative peace. Again, not to say that everything was perfect and everything was fine. There was lots of things that were worse then than they are now, perhaps. But it was a period of of relative peace on the worldwide scene before things 
took off and went a little bit crazy. But I like it because I think the analogy with Jeremiah was the right one. Because I made the argument that Jeremiah gets called into service of the Lord during the reign of King Josiah, which was a good reign, but it wasn't perfect. There was still idolatry all over the kingdom of Israel, which is why Josiah showed up to try to fix it. But there was still idolatry. There was still sin. They were still trampling down the poor. All these terrible things were still happening. But there was a, a moment of like, oh, there's hope here. There's, there's a bright spot. And God used that bright spot to call Jeremiah in, in the same way that I, I maybe God used a little bright spot to call you and I into the faith in a, in a different way in that moment. Does that make sense? That's my apology, disclaimer, and clarification. Wow, yeah, yeah. I, that's funny. I've been it's thinking a, about this a lot. Yeah, yeah. I've been listening, and I'm like, um, wow. That, I, Scott is uh, Scott is the main responder. He gets those things. I have a lot of— I'll send of, you some charts. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. So so you guys, um, thanks for being so invested. No, it, really, really. It really means a lot to us, the, the yes. level of investment that you guys have and— um, but that is to say, we move on now to the 23rd Sunday in ordinal time. Where things get much darker <laughs> than they were in the 90s. Yeah. So uh, to speak. Don't start yourself. No, I'm not. I'm done. Have, I'm done. I'm just playing. I have, I'm just playing I around. Sh- I have a shovel over here if you want to keep digging. I'm just playing around. I'm done. <laughs> All right. The 23rd Sunday of Ordinary Time. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> Our first reading is coming from the book of Ezekiel. Zeke. Uh, chapter 33, verses 7 through 9. Our psalm is Psalm 95, which is um, uh, a psalm that we actually pray daily as an invitatory. So, yes, that's right. In yep, the so, liturgy of the hours. Yep. Right? Verses 1 to 2, jumping through 6 through 9. Yeah, very good. Uh, our second reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, toward the end of the epistle. And then our gospel mm-hmm. comes from Matthew, chapter 18, 15 to 20, with the response from 2 Corinthians five nineteen. What? Oh, yeah, the Alleluia response. Yeah, what did I say? The response. I just, it took me a second to get yeah, to what you were saying. Yeah, the, the verse for the Alleluia. Yeah. Um, what an interesting, yeah, that's might be worth talking about, but we, that aside. Right. We'll put it aside for now. Yeah, exactly. I, which is, which is, I mean, it's okay. I, I have to say, I want to hear, right. I want to hear what you got because, because I have a, I have a, I have a thing. <laughs> Did I that actually... seems mean because I told you explicitly I don't have much. <laughs> but that's fine. <laughs> well, no, but you said no, you, have, you, have an, you have an I've introduction to Ezekiel. Is what oh, yeah, I can unpack what's... There's a context that it's always important. Because I have a frame by which I think that we can engage all of these readings today. That, I love frames. That, like, that I'm going to... I think I just want to share it at the beginning before we even get into Zeke. All right, man, do it. Okay. I was looking and all of the readings have this one thread... And I, I think I see what that is, but I want to hear what your take is on it. The Our Father. That's not where I thought you were going. <laughs> no, not, I was, I was looking, I was looking at the petitions not. of the Death, Our, maybe the Our Father. And so what happens is that the our, the last the last petition of the Our Father is um, deliver us from evil, uh-huh. which leads us into Ezekiel. Really? Yeah. Give us give us some context here, well, and then I'm going to tease out. Now that you say that, and I, just for sake of of looking ahead where, where we might be going, now that you say the Our Father piece, which I hadn't considered, I think you could also make an argument that the the concept of debt and indebtedness in the Our Father is also present in all four of these readings. Absolutely. Well, so so right, what's right, what's right. interesting specifically borne out in Romans, specifically borne out in Romans. Um, <laughs> 
Are you just but, repeating what I'm saying? No. <laughs> okay, it's good. But I don't mind it. Like, um, which is interesting. Well, because because I actually the the gospel, and we, when we get to those, I'm going to point yeah, yeah. out what I see. Thank uh, you. Otherwise, otherwise, I could just do the whole podcast don't. in one thing, and then and then it's no fun anymore. Yeah, that's not fun. But <laughs> I, but but as we that's... listen, I just want you to put the last petitions of the Our Father in your brain. Deliver us from evil. Yep. Okay. Amen. Okay. Um, Ezekiel, uh, the context of Ezekiel is this. Ezekiel is distinct in among the, the sort of major prophets, major prophets being Isaiah, major prophets simply being in the biblical categories, the biggest ones, the longest books, right, <laughs> right. are called the majors. They're not more important than Hosea or Amos. So these guys, they just get longer books. So we're talking about Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, I suppose. Um, we've been talking a lot about uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah in recent weeks, right? Which, and I think we've, because it was Jeremiah last week, if I recall, and it's been yep. Isaiah for a while before that. It's always Isaiah, dude. It's often <laughs> Isaiah. It's clearly not always because it's Ezekiel. <laughs> <laughs> it might might it's as well Ezekiel. be Isaiah. It's Come not. On. No, it's not. Uh, but there's a, here's the, the most key. They're all talking more. <coughs> sorry. They're all talking more or less about the same topic and time period, although Isaiah bounces around a ton. But they're really all speaking about the concept of Israel who's fallen into deep sin, who's broken covenant with God, who is abusing people around them and each other, and they're going to be punished for it. And the punishment will come primarily in the form of Babylon, this foreign nation who's going to come and take Israel over and destroy Jerusalem and the temple and take them off into slavery, which leads to the exile. Um, Isaiah and Jeremiah both speak is, is about that, this. Is that, is that like where you go grocery shopping in the exile? That's my, yes, it is. That's where I get my breakfast foods. You, 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 we, we, well yeah. done. Okay, thanks. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, but the thing that's interesting about Ezekiel, it's telling the same story as those books about the exile, but it's telling it from a totally different point of view. So Ezekiel um, was actually so um, Isaiah and Jeremiah tell the story from the perspective of Jerusalem itself. Ezekiel shifts a little bit and takes those same events and looks at them from a different point of view. So Ezekiel, like a, a personal one. Well, on one level, a personal one, but on another level, a supernatural one. Because Ezekiel, who was a priest, he was taken in the second round of exile. So when Babylon came, they took exiles and slaves away in in different rounds. So they took the people who they wanted most first, the doctors, the lawyers, the craftsmen, and and then they kind of systematically either took who they wanted or killed everybody else. So Ezekiel was taken in, I think, 597 was the second round of exiles. But what that means is that Ezekiel is taken away from Jerusalem before Jerusalem is destroyed. So he's already in exile, and what God gives him is this supernatural view as to what's happening back in his home. So he sees. So uh, I think it was Tim Gray. He always gave this analogy when he taught the prophets of J Isaiah and Jeremiah are, are kind of looking at things from the Beltway. He, he had just moved from DC when he was <laughs> teaching this, and he's like, "It's kind of the Beltway. They're, like, they're looking at all these things happening." Ezekiel is actually able to take you inside of it, and he takes you inside what's happening in a way that you couldn't actually see it if you were there, because he gets. He, God allows him to see the inside view of how God sees this because he's not there. He's not present. So it's easy to read Ezekiel and read these prophecies of destruction and, and punishment and think, well, wait a second, he's already in Babylon. Didn't this all already happen? And of course, the answer is no, it hasn't happened yet. He actually is seeing it happening almost in real time, but in spiritual real time. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. And he's also given this, um, his, his inaugural vision is that famous vision of the chariot wheels. It's the presence of God on wheels, basically, reminding him that, look, even if you're off in exile, even if you've been hauled away from your home, God can still be present wherever you are. And where we actually pick it up today is just before the moment that Ezekiel has a messenger run to him and tell him the ominous words, Jerusalem has fallen. And I don't know if you read how much of the context around this reading you read, but in a few lines after what he says, a messenger comes and says, Jerusalem has fallen. It's gone now. And there's this enters into this huge lament of like, oh, it finally happened kind of once and for all. It's interesting because the, the context right before this is actually, he says, son of man, say, say to, go to your people and tell them a parable. Yeah. He's like, if, yeah. if all yeah. this happens and the, this watchman doesn't see the sword and then, then he gets pulled away. But if he does and then he doesn't do it, he's just, he's like trying to say, like, he's trying to give them an insight into what he's doing. And then we get into this reading. Well, I think God is trying to give Ezekiel an insight into what Ezekiel is doing. And then Ezekiel in turn is trying to give a parable to give the people insight into what Ezekiel is doing. Right, exactly. But it's the layers of, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to explain to you what I'm doing, but I really need God to explain it to me first because I'm doing it. And it's, which is kind of a beautiful spiritual analogy. Sometimes we get started doing the work of God and doing what we think he's calling us to do, even before we have full understanding of what God has actually called us to do. Right. And so Ezekiel is kind of getting that as he's going. Right. But yeah, tell us about what he, uh, what he says here. So this watchman parable. So, well, it's not a parable. I mean, it is kind of a parable, it, it, well, but it's an he analogy. Said, what he says to the people, he's like trying to give them a vision. Parables that, for the people, man. Right. Well, which is which is just to say it expresses itself in our reading. Yeah, yeah. It, rather than saying this is about to be what happens, yeah. it says, no, the Lord's saying to him, I've appointed you yeah. for the watchman. And when you hear something that I'm going to say, you have to tell the people. Yeah. And when you say to the wicked, you wicked must die and and you don't speak up to warn the wicked about their ways that if they die in their sins i'm going to hold and if you don't do this i'm going to hold you responsible for their blood yeah which is like you if you mm. if they are in sin and you see it and you do nothing to get them out of their sin or call them out on that then their sin is actually on your hands right your head which is which is hard but then if you say to them and then then you save your life. If you're if you're if you're honest about what's actually happening and what you're seeing, then you're then you're gonna be okay. Yes. Which is interesting because And they so, either will or will not be okay, depending on how they respond to you. Right, which is which is where I get deliver us from evil. This is like uh, okay. So what what's happening is is like we actually have a prophet in okay. Jesus Christ who's come to us, who's warned us and saying, If you go down this path, you will die. Hmm. Whereas I am life, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So, so it's it's almost like um, if we if we start at a place to where we're not actually trying to avoid evil, because this is the thing is I always see that our father as an inverse as a ladder, like the 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 top the the greatest part of it is the our father. Like that's actually yeah, what right. we're trying to to go yes. for. Yeah. Whereas the yeah. bottom rung is is you just actually have to start by. Like being delivered from evil, delivered from evil, deliver us, Lord, from e- every evil. So, so in a certain sense, how do we how do we find that deliverance? 
I know you. I, it, it's really hard to do the Our Father backwards. not into temptation, but delivers from evil. Amen. Okay. I was trying to think of where the deliver where it lead us not into temptation came, which is right before deliver us from evil. It's the yeah, next, yeah, right. It's the next run. And my, up. For some reason, I thought it was afterwards, but no, it's not. You know, it's the it's the very first thing. So, so what no, is Ezekiel yeah. is saying? Is he's saying, you know what, you you have you have actually a warning system in place, and it's me. And it's me, <laughs> essentially, and, and and it's going to consistently. And Ezekiel, of course, represents what the rest. He he's trying to. He's a model for how the nation is supposed to be to each other. Right. He's not the only one. Right. But he might feel like he's the only one. Which is always, oftentimes like being a morality teacher. Yeah. <laughs> you're oh like, my gosh. You're like, oh man, do I really have to keep going through this kind of stuff? And the answer is yes, because it's not just being a morality. It's just this is where we connect back to Jeremiah last week, because the prophet is not just a messenger. The prophet is not just someone who says something. The prophet is someone who embodies the message in right. their very in their very person. Which is no fun. Which is no fun. And so Ezekiel is not just he's the only one. He's not just the teacher of it. He is the one who embodies what Israel is supposed to be. And not just what Israel is supposed to be for each other in this particular circumstance, but what Israel is supposed to be in the world. Why is there a Babylon who is coming and wiping out all these nations and, you know, this imperial force in the world? Partially because Israel didn't do her job, which was to call out evil when it was seen because Israel was too busy falling into evil and into sin to be the light to the rest of the world that she was called to be. Right. So, yeah, there's an immediate kind of kind of uh, uh, micro context of, well, you know, got to call out the people of Israel of their sin and their evil. But you should do that because Israel's job is to be the representative of that on the earth. Which, Which is, is where Jesus is going to sort of take this. And where Jesus entrusts the keys of the kingdom. Right, to Peter. To, to, uh, to oh, Peter to, and to, to the us, church. To me. To, to, yeah, yeah, to like right. the fullness <laughs> of the church. Yeah, yeah, I'm just to be the prophetic voice in a unified way within the world. Can I say one other thing about uh, what Ezekiel is supposed to do here? Because we end, our reading here ends, where is it end? Uh, verse 9. But if you read on, something interesting happens here. If you read the very next verse, it says, Son of man, so this is God speaking to Ezekiel, Son of man, say to the house of Israel, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and our sins weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And there's two things I want to point out there. Number one, this is, I believe, really the first time in the book of Ezekiel that Israel seems to actually confess their own sins. And if you read the rest of Ezekiel, much of actually what it talks about prior to this in Ezekiel is the people of Israel saying, it's really not our fault. This is our parents' fault. This is our fathers. Our fathers had sinned. Our parents had sinned. All these other people did all of this terrible stuff to bring all of this evil upon us. It's not on us. And finally, by this moment where chronologically speaking, things are getting really bad, Jerusalem is about to literally fall in the next chapter. Israel finally, and presumably this is enslaved Israel who's already been hauled off, 
are finally saying, oh, no, we have done this. It's not just, oh, our parents were terrible and they did all these things that brought all this evil upon us. And now we're stuck with the consequences. It is really we have our offenses and our sins weigh us down, both our personal sins that we've done and the sins of our parents and the people around us, which actually are ours as well, because we're actually we share solidarity in this because we all experience the consequence of sin. None of us are immune. This is the whole concept of the body of Christ, which will become revealed to us in a more full way later on in Revelation, that none of us are immune from what someone else in the body of Christ does. The body of Christ is a body, and your sin affects me. My sin affects you. My, you know, choice to do what's right actually affects you and the rest of the body of Christ. And this is Israel finally kind of wrapping its head around this for the very first time, which is actually one of the brightest moments in the whole book, because they finally realize this, and God is able to respond by saying, See, I don't take pleasure in punishing. I don't want you to realize, oh, you're so horrible. You're so sinful. You've done all these terrible things. Now I get to wipe you out. I don't want to do that. I want your life. And this is the place, really one of the clearest places in the book that God reveals my purpose in punishing is not to make you feel terrible and to wipe you out. My purpose in punishment is to restore, is to bring you back to life. As any good parent who has to sometimes give consequences to their kids You don't do it because you're just angry or doing it to be mean. You bring it to bring life, and God reveals this. And so there's this insight into why God is doing it. Israel finally begins to have the light bulb go off, and God says, yes, that's it. Now you get it. Now I can begin bringing you back to life. Which is beautiful on the first rung of the Deliver Us From Evil. Exactly right. That's what made me think of that. Because it's, it's, it's saying... You know what? Let let's not actually just deal in in the the fall consequence mode. Yes, let's, right. Let's actually be delivered from from that mode and and start to understand and confess our sin in a way that's right. like, okay. Right. And once we're once we move from that, then we are able to move up and to say into the temptation realm. Yeah, which is actually yeah. where which is actually where we get to in our psalm in the psalm Psalm ninety five, which right. is which is traditionally believed to be, it's not one of the Psalms of David, it's believed to be one of the Psalms of the Levitical priests that were sung out at the temple as a call to prayer for people to come um, and offer worship as the priests were making sacrifice. That's the traditional uh, context of Psalm 95. Oh, that's really cool because that's, yeah. that's actually our invitatory. So we're supposed exactly. to stall our, start our day with that idea. I think that's why it's put there. It's a call for us to actually be sacrificial within the day. Yeah, right. That's that's actually beautiful. I mean, we're and, and, and most priests actually pray that as their invitatory. There's a couple right. options. But the, the reason why I say that temptation is this is because we says, do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah and uh, the day of Massa yeah, in the yeah. desert, which Massa is means temptation. Tem- place of temptation. Yeah, place literally. of temptation. Was so, that the rock where they, they smacked the rock out of anger? and? Yes, exactly. Exodus 17. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So it's Exodus 17, 7, which is where yeah. where it's it's like, this is interesting because this is actually where give us this day our daily bread. Right, out, right, right before this, they get the manna from heaven. Well, you know the the thinking that the entire Exodus prayer or the entire Our Father prayer is an Exodus prayer. Have we talked about this? No. I did back when I worked at the biblical school. We did a, a weekend long retreat where we went through literally every line of the Our Father and unpacked how it is all about the Exodus. Oh. One line after another. The Exodus is literally the first time that God reveals Himself as Father. 
This oh. is my son. Let him go, Pharaoh. So yeah, I mean the the connections to the Exodus period, I think, are explicit there for a reason, and it feeds your Our Father um, framework. Right. So 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 the Mirabah and Massa they challenged me and provoked me, although they had seen all of my works. Yeah. Um, which which was the plagues, all these things that happened in Egypt, the parting of the, the Red Sea, the fire, the presence, for, the right. smoke, the like you saw all this stuff and you still couldn't believe and got mad and and lamented and and tested me and said, well, why don't you give us more water? Why don't you give us more bread? Why don't you give us more more quail and meat to eat? You know, it was so much better back in slavery. That's the context for this, right? And. Which is the, the the idea of slavery is is evil. It's like you yes, know what right. they got hauled off into the exodus. I mean, uh, into the to the um, uh, exile of Babylon of Babylon in Ezekiel's time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So yeah. so in that mode, it's just yeah. it's just consequence. This is actually how this is this is the full expression. Deliver us from evil. Let's don't bring us into that place. Yes. Well, okay. I mean, yes, in, in yes. this context. Well, but I'm I'm thinking about that, and I I I have some disjointed thoughts about Romans coming from what we're saying here. But but if you t- take this back to Ezekiel, I mean, <laughs> chrono- If you put it chronologically, and even the chronologically chronology chronology of Ezekiel is a little bit whacked out. But again, this moment that I think is this beautiful moment in the book of Ezekiel where the people do finally realize their own sin and recognize the heaviness of what has happened and the evil that has wrought the consequence. And God says, okay, now I can explain to you that I've done this to bring you back to life. Right. Oh, in the next line we hear Jerusalem has fallen. We're going to be stuck in slavery for the next 70 years. And then essentially in exile from our homeland for 490 more years. The fact that um, the deliver us from evil, it, it, it's they're in evil in a certain sense. So they've been delivered into unto Babylon because of their own evil, because of the weight of their own sin. But the recognition of their own sin and the recognition of the real con- the love of God and the way that He works through the consequences that He gives, because nothing that happens in history is outside of God's view, is outside of God's will and doing. Everything that happens happens because God either wills it or allows it. Right? right. That that has to be the case. So if you are in exile in Babylon, it is because God has allowed you to be here, and He has something for you to learn. You have recognized your own sin, and I have begun to reveal to you, says God, that it is for your life to bring you back to it. And that is the way that God is beginning to teach Ezekiel and the rest of the people to view exile. So the deliver us from evil doesn't just say, get us out of exile. It says, okay, we're in exile. That's just where we are. We're grounded. We're punished. We're in this situation. So now deliver us from the evil of not actually seeing your hand on this moment. Mm, Does that make sense? I think it's the only context through which we can use this. And again, put it back in the psalm, right? They're going to be stuck wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, which feels like an evil. But God is saying, no, the evil is not recognizing that I'm actually working with you during this time. Although it feels like a punishment, and maybe it is, it is for the sake of restoring you, restoring your hearts and restoring you as a people. See, I, w- I would even say that like, that, that, that this is actually contained in Deliver Us from Temptation because the temptation yeah. is, the, is the nihilism 
Yes, the, yes, the, yes, the, yes, the yes. God doesn't isn't actually doing this, and that because yes. that's what's yes, happening yes. at Meribah and Massa. Absolutely, and it's, for the whole forty years, that's what's also happening as they're going off in exile, right? In Ezekiel's time, it's what happens constantly, right? And so, so it's this, it's de, it's, it's the deliverance for this expression of saying, okay, let me not be tempted. I want to, I want to be right. solid in the knowledge that you're taking care of us because because the, yes. they're because in that's a real what the way, temptation is right they're like in because in exodus it says yes. um yes. because they called it mirab and master because of the fault finding of the sons of israel because yeah. they put the lord to the test by saying is the lord among us or not yeah right and they're and so this is like um like so that so that's that's the adventure so which brings us into romans romans in a way that um I, I'm gonna pull some context. I'm gonna I'm gonna call an audible here and and pull a little context okay. to make sense of this. Okay. There's if if you read Romans at, at face value, there's a direct connection with what Romans says back to Ezekiel, calling people out for sin, calling sin for what it is, um, loving one another, and 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 back into the Gospels. But the way that it's worded, so brothers and sisters, and this is where again we're getting toward the end of the book. Owe nothing to anyone. And actually, literally in the Greek, it says, do not hold any debt or do not, um, what is it? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have tr- uh, debted, are debting us. Kind of. What it says, what my uh, the NIV translates it, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Isn't that a great rendering of that? Yeah. Let no debt remain. So owe nothing to anyone. You can kind of lose the imagery right. of precisely what you're saying here and this thread that goes through. If you put it in terms of debt, it changes the, the meaning. So don't be indebted to anyone except the debt of love that we all owe one another. For uh, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law and the commandments and actually goes into the Ten Commandments and shows why that is the yoke, so to speak, of the commandments. And that's what holds everything together. The reason I think this is important in the context that we're talking about, not to get all political, and not political in our circumstance, but political in Paul's time, this is coming, the context actually matters here because Paul says this immediately after talking about taxes. So is it any coincidence that he talks about taxes and financial indebtedness, literally the sentence before he talks about the debt to love one another? So this is coming off of the section where People either love this or hate this portion and love to avoid it in Romans chapter 13, where Paul says, you know what? We're to respect the government. And it's that really proud. You remember this whole thing where he's like, God has established governments for your good. And if you're freaking out by, you know, empire. Now, he's speaking to the people who are living in the center of the Roman Empire under probably Nero, who's going to become one of the most persecuting, bloodiest emperors toward Christianity that has ever existed. And Paul is going out of his way and people criticize him because it sounds like Paul's just saying, just obey, just blindly acquiesce, you know, the government, you know, just just be nice little pacifist citizens and don't worry, like it's it's everything's fine, which is not what Paul's saying when he's saying respect the government because God put them there for your good. He's saying He's saying to a group of Christians who are living under Nero, who has either launched his persecution or is about to, that nothing that happens, even the emperor who will call for your blood, nothing is outside of the will of God. Nothing is outside of God's hand, which is exactly what he's saying to Ezekiel, which is exactly what he's saying in the time of Exodus. Deliver us from evil in the sense of being tempted to think, oh my gosh, the emperor is evil. He hates Christianity. We're being persecuted. God has forgotten us. God is ignoring us. God has abandoned us because persecution is coming. And temptation is is to believe that 
everything that I see is all that there is to the universe rather than the truth that Christ has conquered evil and defeated death, even though I'm experiencing death, even though it feels like it's evil all around. Paul is going out of his way to say even the Roman Empire is not, cannot escape the power of the King of Kings. And he's also already said that at the name of Jesus, sometime in the eschatological vision, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, including Caesar's tongue, including Caesar's knee, including the president of the United States, whoever that person is in the future, even his or her knee will bend and will bow to Jesus. And what Paul is saying is, if you lose sight of the eschatological surety of the kingship of Jesus— and you don't put every historical circumstance that you experience within that, then yes, you will fall into the temptation and evil will defeat you because it will look like evil has won. And so Paul's saying to a group of Christians suffering under Nero or about to suffer under Nero, look, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. Even Nero's. Maybe it's not confessing now. Maybe it's not bowing now. But we believe in an eschatological vision where every single tongue and every single knee will bend and will bow and will speak and confess. Therefore, you can actually look at your cruel, oppressive government and say, it's okay because God is in charge and I can wait this out because God is big enough. And if they demand taxes from me, I can pay my taxes and I can give one, you know, I can, I can actually do the responsible thing as a citizen, not given to evil. There's a fine line between, if, you know, we're called to do evil things. We can never do evil. But to the degree that we're called to do things, Paul says, don't worry about it. You can do that. And after, literally just after saying, if you're called to pay taxes, pay taxes. He literally said that the sentence before. If they ask you, he said, uh, this is why you pay taxes for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. So give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay your taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And then he says, let no debt remain outstanding except the debt to love one another. You can't read this passage in isolation from a geopolitical, social, economic circumstance that the people live in. Because when we want to yank Romans out of the real world then when you and I live in the real world, which is threatening and scary and evil and oppressive, we don't know what to do with that because we have these abstract notions that we've removed from historical circumstance. And we say, look, the way of Christian life is to be persecuted and to love anyway and to forgive anyway and to not give in to the temptation to evil to believe that evil is going to win. Which is, Does that make sense? Yeah. That was which, a lot of yeah, stuff. Which is why, like, w when we say, th this one is associated for me as forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, which is the... Which in Greek is debt. Which is, in Greek is debt. Yeah. So it's, it's... Forgive us our debt as we debt forgive those trespasses, the, yeah. these things, because there's... Yeah. There, cause, uh, justice is giving each his due. And so when we sin, we're yeah. actually not giving what's proper and what's due. Yeah. So this is actually to God or to the other. Right. Exactly. Sometimes both. Right. The, the yoke of the Lord. And yeah. so when we look and we say, well, what is proper and what is due? Um, this is the one that we all get tripped up on when Absolutely. we're praying the, our father, because we hold a lot of debts inside of us and Absolutely we, and, right. and, and we, 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 um, we have debts to others that we have not yet paid. Absolutely. And we also had others have debts to us that Absolutely. they have not yet paid, th th that they have not actually given us. Absolutely. And when you encounter somebody who actually lives out of the profound forgiveness of heart that right. releases other people from right. what they owe them, they 
are they shine like stars in heaven. Right. They, they, there's something that's that's absolutely so profound in the one who authentically forgives from their heart because they get to live out of this profound freedom. Right. They, they actually get to go through the world without all of these constraints that are that are twisting them up. Which, Father Peter, not to oversimplify this, that exactly what you just said, that's what made the early Christians literally convert the world. Right. They converted the Roman Empire because they were not terrified of the Roman Empire. And all of a sudden, the Romans encountered the first group of people ever who weren't terrified by them and oppressed by the, the yoke that the Rome was trying to put on them. They said, we're not oppressed by this. We're not troubled by we're tax, we'll do our thing, and we will not hang on to the hatred and the indebtedness and the fear that is trying to be imposed on us because we have Christian freedom. And the Roman world looked at that and said, what the heck is with you guys? How come you're not terrified of us like everybody else is? Hmm. And they said, because we're free. Right. We don't have to hold that anymore. Oh, you're going to kill us? You're going to persecute us? We will be free and we will forgive and we will change the world. That's literally what happened. It's what you're explaining. Right. Which but is they did it en masse. Right. And so then not how, in mass, but en mass. Probably in mass too. N M A S S E. Both of them. Mass. But probably in mass. But not at Miraba and Massa. No, not at Miraba and Massa. That but, was a bad place. <laughs> no, but then how do, how do we actually get to that place internally? So yes, this is the wider external world. Right. Now we actually go into Matthew, and Jesus is telling us how yes. to live this as a community. And and it's this is where the 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 Christian vision, the Catholic understanding, the Catholic hermeneutic for reading the scriptures is always. Everything in the Old Testament is illuminated and explained by Jesus Christ. And everything in the Old must be read through the lens of Jesus Christ. So when God tells Ezekiel that his job as a watchman is to call out evil and wickedness, the lens for that is unpacked in Jesus' words in Matthew. Okay, what does it mean to call out evil? What does it mean to correct someone's sin and to call out wickedness? Let me unpack exactly what I mean by that. And that's right. the, the beauty of this passage and in light of the other one, right? Right, which so so it, which goes to the same thing in the Our Father. You know, forgive us our trespasses, we forgive those who trespass against us. Right. And the way we do it is is individually, and then we bring testimony if that doesn't work. And then yeah. if we have to actually go further, then we bring them to the bishop or to the priest. And right. and then if even if that happens, then we would ask you to treat them as you would a Gentile or tax collector, which is that's which my is favorite line in here. Yeah, which is the, which? How do you what do you do with them? You evangelize them. How does the question is always how does Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He calls them and dines with them yes. and invites them into. Right. So, see, you you actually take the time to say, oh, they they don't actually. Get it. This is what the process of the new evangelization is. Because you can easily read that and be like, oh, if they don't listen to you, if they don't listen to the witnesses, if they don't listen to what you know, you're trying to call them out. Treat them as a Gentile, a tax collector. In other words, cast them out, ignore them, shun them, mock them. Which is how most people in Jesus's time and society treated Gentiles and tax collectors. Well, this is being written by Matthew, a, who's a tax who's a tax collector who got called by <laughs> yes. Jesus in the midst of his sin to follow after the Lord. And who witnessed the way that Jesus did this, both in his own life and in the lives of people around him. Absolutely. So, so then what, but then, then we yeah. get into the, the next level here. It says, amen, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven and whatever loose on earth should be loosed in heaven. Which he just told the apostles back in chapter 16. Remember what the, oh no, he told Peter specifically. 
with the keys to the kingdom. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, loose on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what, so what yeah, happens yeah. is this is actually what gave me the insight because I was trying to understand. I'm like, I'm like, okay, I know that Peter has this wider binding power right, that, right. that is way intense. But then I'm looking and I'm saying, oh, earth as it is in heaven. And I'm saying, oh, okay, so this is actually about the will of God being accomplished um, through this forgiveness. Um, I'm, I'm raising my hands. I know. In, that's in, why in, I wanted to pause because I want to catch what you're thinking. And I don't know if this is going to make sense. I'm just thinking out loud. Um, and we know that. I mean, I, I've heard, I know the concept on earth as, and we've unpacked the Our Father before. I mean, the Our Father is saying, okay, what is God's insight into the world? What is God's purview of how things ought to look? That's how we ought to live here in the kingdom of God on earth. Right. Which in a certain sense, I mean, that's what Ezekiel is. That's why maybe Ezekiel is a great... Uh, icon of this whole idea, because Ezekiel is telling the same story that Isaiah and Jeremiah just told, but he's telling God's point of view of it. Here's how God in heaven sees and is dealing and accounting with what is happening on earth. So let us respond on earth as God is responding in heaven. Does that make sense? That's yeah. the whole book of Ezekiel. Which is which is Jesus' which is now Jesus's The kingdom come, the Basileia yes. to Theu. Right. So what happens is, how does Jesus treat the Gentiles and the tax collectors? The kingdom has come for them. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so he we're, takes time with them. He dines with, like you already said all these things. Well, no, this is what, but that's what the kingdom being manifest, that's the kingdom right. coming right. and the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. Right. So, yeah. it's, so, so it's, that's actually what converts Rome. That's what can, that's what will convert it now does. Yeah, right. is in, because that's actually how we come to know what is the glory of God. And we reach the, the, the summation, which is to say, God is fathering us through everything. And this is, this is the temptation that, that I got to be honest is that I'm struggling with right now through, yeah. through a few, you know, six months of pandemic, not yeah. 70 years of exile yeah. is that, is that, yeah. uh, is is yeah. uh, governmental insanity yeah. mixed yeah. with um, all sorts of conflicting and di disagreeing opinions from everything f f on every level of everything, and and I find myself in this place of like of of, of being caught, and yet to th th that we're actually meant to say when we the the, the kingdom is still being manifest. This nothing has. Nothing has stopped that from being present right now. But that's why we have this process of praying this way. Nothing has stopped that from being present right now. But one thing has hindered it from being seen clearly, I think. Because I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And, and I mean, well, here's, here's the thing. Two things. We're living in the midst of, the, of craziness and everyone's out of control and everyone hates each other. And there's, you know, it's, it's madness. And what I find most frustrating about the madness is not the madness of our society and the madness of our political structure and the responses to the pandemic. Like, it's all craziness. And in a certain level, the Christian should experience the world to be crazy or should expect, rather, the world to be a little unhinged. Right? That's just how it goes. Um, and that's what Paul is saying in, in uh, Romans is like, it's okay. God's still there. The thing that's more troubling than that is that I think we actually see the very same thing reflected in the church. And the church is just as unhinged as the rest of society. And the church, I mean, I, what I'm seeing here, and the thing that keeps sticking out most to me is Jesus is being very crystal clear about how to deal with someone who is in sin in the church. And it's go to them, sit down, talk to them, 
Tell them what you're seeing. Right. If they don't listen to you, right. bring a friend, bring a confidant, you know, bring someone who's trustworthy. If that doesn't work, then go to the church, actually go to the structure. But what we're seeing is not that. We have a, we have the, our cancel culture, our call-out culture, which is just as bad in the church as it is in the rest of the world. And if we see someone who is doing something problematic in our church, a brother or sister in Christ, what do we do? We smear it all over Facebook. And we want to blast it all over the media to show everybody, look at what an idiot they are. Look at what a fool, sinner, horrible person that person is. And it's like we've all read Ezekiel without the explanation from Jesus. We're like, oh, there's an evil. That person's doing evil. I have to shout it from the rooftops like a watchman. And Jesus said, no, the job of the watchman is to do the much harder work of going and sitting down and speaking to the fault. Imagine how much more sane this period in history in 2020 would be with pandemic and politics and economics and everything else going on if it felt like the church wasn't just as bad and slanderous and mad at each other and hatred, hate filled with each other as the rest of the world. If the church could come as a unified front and say, we're not scared of the evils of the world. We're not afraid of the politics. We're not afraid of the pandemic. We're not afraid of sin or death or disease. We have faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we are here to tell the world that there is reason for hope. But that's not what the world sees when they look at the church. They see a bunch of people who seem to hate each other that are perfectly happy to smear all of our own dirty laundry all over at whatever headline will take us. Right? Right. And that's the opposite of what Jesus is saying, which is the opposite of, well, I, that person goes to my parish and I really disagree with them. And they're doing this really horrible thing. I should sit down. I should have coffee with them and we should talk about that. Right. No, I'm going to put it on my neighborhood Facebook group and, you know, or my or whatever, you know, my, my whatever du jour social media thing to show everybody how dumb this person is. And maybe I'm maybe I'm I'm off track on this, but this is this is what I feel like I'm seeing. And again, I, my reading of the New Testament is that the New Testament Jesus, Paul, the apostles, no one is ever that freaked out by what the rest of the culture is doing. Paul's never freaked out by the Romans. Jesus is never freaked out by all of the the culture of death that surrounds him and surrounds them. He's worried about what's happening in the church. He's worried that the church is splintered against herself. He's worried that people will rise up in the church and mislead others. The culture of death is always going to be the culture of death. There will always be sin in our society. There will always be oppression. There will always be persecution. That is the way of Christianity. It's the way it's always been. The danger, so says the New Testament, is when we begin to get ripped apart internally as a church because then we are compromised in our ability to give witness to the world that there's actually a hope to put themselves in. Hmm. That's what the, I mean, if I'm honest with myself, that's what I find most troubling about this gospel reading. Hmm. Yeah, the world's always going to be in chaos. That's, again, I think that's what Paul's saying in Romans. Yeah, oh, you're freaked out because there's a persecuting, oppressive government? It's par for the course. Get used to it. That's where Jesus, that was Jesus's whole story. It's the whole story of our salvation was a persecutorial, oppressive government that did the worst thing humanly imaginable. And guess what? wasn't even close to being enough to stop Jesus. Yeah. We shouldn't be freaked out about that. We should be freaked out about a church who actually is so divided among itself that we can't give witness to the world. And Jesus has actually given us the antidote. He's saying, no, this is actually how to deal with sin in the church. I don't know. I don't know uh, if that was too close to home or too hard. Not close to home in the sense of us or anything, but it's hard to because maybe I'm doing the same thing. Maybe I'm just now airing my thoughts on the church's dirty laundry out in the world and saying, we stink at doing this. But... 
If the no. church is not different than the rest of the world in our response to the world and the evils of the world, then we have nothing to say to the world. Right. Except what the world is already saying. Right. And I think that's probably, and I think that's where we're at. Dude, I'm going to, I'm going to have to like hang out. I'm going to listen. I'm actually going to go back and listen to the podcast and the points that you're making again, because, because there is a lot that you said. And I, I like, yeah, we have always, we've been called to be different and, and, um, I want to take really seriously what you've been saying because I'm like, uh, I don't have a real response to it actually right now, other than to say like, yeah, we, we cannot just be a people that act like everybody else because that, that actually is destructive to, uh, the evangelization and making the kingdom of God known. And, and so I'm gonna go pray in our father. All right, <laughs> that's, that's, good. that's a good idea. Me too. You, you guys, thank you for joining us today. That was um, uh, there. There's a lot of beautiful things and uh, unexpected stuff that happened, and and I I pray God that uh, that uh, the church, which is simultaneously holy and sinful, um, gets to 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 express the glory of God in a way that is totally unobstructed, and mm. that we learn how to to be with one another as as a church and because we we have lost a lot of our ability to be with one another in in um in in the church yeah. um we we can we can take such avoidant measures mm-hmm. by bailing you, you know it's 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 like the two the two things that you never want to have in conflict resolution is violence and silence and um <laughs> and, i'm not i don't mean to laugh at that never, but that's good yeah right when we're trying wow. to resolve conflicts with one another we we have a tendency wow. to to go to those two sides which is violence and silence and wow and 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 when we do it inside wow. of the church it, it doesn't work when we do it in culture it doesn't work when we do it interpersonally it doesn't work yeah. it's it's only when we actually say like no like le- do we actually want to be with one another do we actually yeah. have a commitment to actually having a relationship with one another. And that's and to change those words that you just said around slightly to put it in Paul's mouth. Do we have an indebtedness to love one another? Oof. Well, because it's not just we need to commit to this, it's we need to recognize that we actually are indebted to one another. Dude, I'm going to put a, 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 a card in my wallet, which is going to be my, um, my uh, platinum love card, which is so I can run up some debt on it. <laughs> See if you can use it at the taco place today. Yeah, my, my, my platinum <laughs> Will you take love this? This is, my, this is my indebtedness of love to you. Can you run this one, please? <laughs> run it. <laughs> All right, love you, we love you guys. Thanks for being with us. See you next time. Okay, bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.